Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is 1 Peter chapter 3, where my Bible is opened up, and I'm going to invite you to be finding 1 Peter chapter 3 in your Bible as well. Really important that we all be looking in the Bible together for these next few minutes. That'll help your attention. That'll help your retention as we study from the Word of God on what is turning out to be a very beautiful Lord's Day morning. It is great to see everyone today. So thankful for your presence. Thankful for the presence of our guests. We're really glad that you're here. What great singing we've had. Appreciate Sawyer, the good job that he's done in leading us in those songs. Appreciate the good prayer that Cody has directed our minds in. And I am eager right now to guide us through some things in the Word of God that I hope and trust will be helpful for us all. In 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm reading here in verse number 15. In 1 Peter 3 and in verse 15, Peter writes... In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Several months ago, we had a sister who was visiting with us uh, on a Sunday morning. She was visiting from uh, another congregation And after services were over, she stopped me in the foyer to discuss something that was was causing her to just be really, really distressed. She told me that when she had got up that Sunday morning and was getting ready for services, she turned on the television to one of the local stations and was watching a religious program that was advertised as being sponsored and promoted by a church of Christ. Uh, she had watched this program several times before and had always found the teaching to be to be very sound and always felt that it was just kind of a good way to start her morning as she's getting prepared and getting ready to go to church. The, the program, though, on this particular Sunday was about the subject of innovations in the church. And that caught her attention. She was interested to find out about innovations in the church and what she needed to be on guard for. And it didn't take very long for the host of that program to launch into the specific innovations that he wanted to address. Namely, there were two of them. Number one, the use of multiple cups on the Lord's Supper. And number two, Bible classes. And according to this sister, I didn't see the program, but according to her, for the next 30 minutes, that preacher railed against multiple cups on the Lord's Supper and Bible classes. He talked about them as being innovations, talked about them as being unscriptural, talked about them as being unauthorized practices, and churches who did those things were in fact in error. And this was extremely concerning to this sister. This is what made her so distraught, because the congregation that she identified and worshipped with regularly did use multiple containers and did have Bible classes. And furthermore, as a visitor here, she realized that we used multiple containers on the Lord's Supper, and that we offered Bible classes. And so she wanted to know, what about that? What about cups and classes? Are we in error because we do have those things? And of course, in that moment, as folks are filing out of the church building and folks are trying to shake hands, I I didn't have a whole lot of time to get into real in-depth with her. I offered her some, some... Just kind of some quick thoughts right there in the foyer. But I then told her and promised her that I would commit to kind of putting some thoughts down, more more extenuating thoughts, put those down on paper, and actually do a lesson on it, do a QA and a session on those particular questions. Well, since she didn't write her question down or give it to me in some other tangible form, I forgot all about those questions. 
Forgot all about it. That is, that is until just a couple of weeks ago. When we here at the church building and at our mailbox, we received this envelope. And inside this envelope is addressed to the Lakeside Church of Christ, addressed to all of us that are members here. Inside this envelope was this booklet. It's a 50-page booklet. And then as well, a corresponding, if you can find it in here, there was a letter attached to it as well. The booklet, as you might be able to guess as to where I'm going, the booklet was essentially a track, and it covered two subjects. It covered the subject of multiple containers on the Lord's Supper, and Bible classes. And the gist of the booklet, and I've read it all the way through, is that those who practice those things, they are in error, they are wrong, and that they need to repent. The letter, though, was what caught my attention. The letter identified this as coming from a brother all the way down in Lubbock, Texas. And since this is being recorded for the podcast, and it's going to be shot out to the World Wide Web, I'm not going to say the brother's name, and I'm not going to say the name of the congregation that he was associated with, But the gist of the letter and the gist of the booklet is that we, as the Lakeside Church of Christ, we are in error on those two issues. And I'm actually going to guess that this letter and this booklet was maybe sent to several other churches of Christ in the area. I'm not going to take the time to read the entirety of this letter, but I do want to share with you the last paragraph of the letter. He said there, through the years, the church, like the children of Israel, has been influenced by the world. When the Restoration Movement began, within 20 years, the Church of Christ was the fourth largest religious body in the United States. Well, Satan saw what was happening and he reacted. Instrumental music was introduced into the church. Of course, the majority went along with that digression. Later, Sunday school and individual communion cups were introduced and again, the majority went along with the digression. Have you ever studied these issues thoroughly? Do you know why you believe what you do? Do you know why we believe what we do? Now, you can make of that letter and the fact that someone would send us such a letter, you can make of that what you will, but I must tell you, I actually appreciate those questions there at the end of that paragraph. Those questions about studying and knowing why we believe what we believe. That's actually the charge of our opening text, isn't it? First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. That we need to be ready. We need to be always prepared to give an answer, to give a defense. We need to do that. We need to be ready to give an answer for what we believe and what we practice. Which is why this morning I want to use our August Q&A session to help us understand some things about an issue that has divided brethren for a number of years now, and unfortunately an issue that continues to be a source of division within churches of Christ today. I do want to spend just a few minutes this morning talking about the matter of cups and classes. Now I know some of you might be sitting here thinking, and you're maybe thinking to yourself, Joshua, why in the world do people have a problem with cups and classes? Uh, we have, well, I love our Bible classes that we have here. Those are great. They're so edifying and beneficial to us. And what's the deal with the cup thing? I don't even get all of that. What exactly is the argument in opposition to multiple containers and Bible classes? Well, actually, actually there are several arguments from the non-class one cup position. And I need to just kind of break those down one by one. And I want to start by talking about the Bible class matter. 
And I want to share with you what is the main objection against Bible classes. And I think that objection was pretty well articulated by this brother all the way back in 1875 who wrote for the Gospel Advocate and he said, if the apostles did not have Sunday schools, then we do not need them and should not have them either. The primary argument against Bible classes back in 1875 and in fact even now in 2018 is that there is no example in the New Testament of a Bible class. And since there is no specific example of a Bible class, there's no authority for them. For nearly 150 years now, brethren have been asking, Hey, where in the Bible do you read of a Bible class? If the apostles didn't have them in the first century church, Why in the world makes us think that we can have them in the 21st century church? And I must tell you that upon hearing that, my initial inclination is to say, well, that's a pretty good argument. That just sounds pretty solid, doesn't it? Because I am always in favor of demanding Bible authority for what we do and what we practice. However, I must also tell you that as good as that argument sounds on the surface it fails to understand and take into account all of the ways in which the Bible can authorize something. Yes, whenever we have a specific apostolic example, that helps us to know, hey, we can do that. We can do that. But you know what? That is not the only way that we can know what God authorizes. Because sometimes, sometimes the Bible authorizes things generally. Can I show you what I'm talking about? Look in 2 Timothy 2, please. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, if somebody came to you and they asked you, hey, what's your authority for Bible classes? Could you answer that? If somebody said, hey, I don't see the apostles having Bible classes in the first century, why do you have them? Could you give a response? Look in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. There Paul says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The significant expression in that verse is able to teach others also. What that says is, is that it is God's will that Christians teach the Word of God. Which means that generally... We can do a number of things in order to fulfill that command. You know, if somebody came along and they asked the question, well, where do we read in the New Testament about the apostles having microphones, huh? What's your authority for a microphone? Well, the authority for a microphone is found in the command to teach others also. A microphone helps us to teach the Word of God. Somebody maybe says, well, where's the authority for a man to get on an airplane and fly in for a gospel meeting? We boarded an airplane back in April to go to Texas to preach in a gospel meeting. Where's the authority for that? Where's the authority for getting on an airplane and doing that? The authority for that is found in the general command to teach others also. When the Bible tells us to do something, that authorizes generally the things that are needed in order to carry out that command and to carry it out effectively. And I want you to notice very carefully that when we take this line of reasoning, this first objection, when we take that and kind of just draw it all the way out to its logical conclusion, 
then what's going to happen is, if we demand an apostolic example for every single thing that we do, then I must tell you, there's going to be a lot of things that's going to have to change around here. Because the apostles, they didn't have microphones. The apostles didn't have projector screens. The apostles didn't have laptops for PowerPoint. The apostles didn't have baptistries like we have baptistries. The apostles didn't have songbooks to sing out of. There's all kinds of things. If we demand a specific apostolic example for everything, then there's going to be a whole bunch of changes that's going to have to be made. But the truth is, in all of those aforementioned things, what we have is we have things that are generally authorized because we have general commands for those things. And this is really what the non-class brethren have just failed to grasp. That when we have, for example, the general command to assemble, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25, then that generally authorizes the things that we need in order to carry out that command, namely, a church building. Or when we have the general command, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, to give, to lay by in store, then that generally authorizes the things that we need to carry out that command, like having somebody to collect that money and take care of that money, having a treasurer, having a bank account, somewhere to place that money, having baskets to actually collect the money on Sundays. When we have the general command to sing, Ephesians 5 verse 19, then that generally authorizes having a song leader, having song books, having hymn slides. Those are the things that help us to carry out that command. Or what about the command to baptize? Jesus commanded that, Matthew 28 verse 19. Well, that general command would also authorize generally having a baptistry, as well as plumbing to that baptistry, having garments for people to change in so that they can be baptized. Or even about the Lord's Supper, the general command to observe the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That would then generally authorize having, having something to put the elements in, having something to put the bread in, something to put the fruit of the vine in, trays, plates, having a table to put all of that on, having men that are able to serve that to the people in the congregation. All of those things are authorized by the general commands that we've been given in Scripture. And in the same exact way, the command to teach the gospel, 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. The command to go and spread the gospel, Matthew 28 verse verse 20. The command to teach and to build up the saints, Ephesians 4 verse 12. That authorizes in a general way things like teachers and lesson books and visual aids and microphones and yes, Bible classes. You know, I will be the first one to admit that there is not a specific example in Scripture of Bible classes, at least as we have them today. But you know what? We do not need to have a specific example when we have the general command to teach God's Word. And so you should know that this number one, this main objection that has been lobbed out by brethren for decades, even to this present day in opposition to Bible class, that objection utterly falls on its face. But you should know that is not the only objection that has ever been offered against Bible classes. I have had personal discussions with brethren who hold the non-class position. And one of the arguments that they're quick to put forward is that Bible classes, Bible classes divide the assembly. 
All kinds of talk has been made about whether the assembly can come together and then be divided. Are Bible classes part of the assembly of the church? Just all kind of discussion about how classes divide the assembly of God's people into different groups. And yet, none of that has anything to do with anything. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. Because the Bible shows that it is right and it is proper for smaller groups of people, smaller groups of Christians, to come together for the purpose of teaching and learning. Let me show you that in Acts chapter 20. In Acts the 20th chapter, we have an illustration of this very thing. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is having what I believe is essentially a Bible class with the Ephesian elders. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 17, we're told that Paul calls together not all the saints in the church at Ephesus. No, he actually only calls the elders. Verse 17, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And so Paul has this study, has this discussion with the elders. As he then reviews and talks with him about the work that he had done amongst them, Notice what Paul says in verse 20. That's really the verse I want us to notice. Verse 20, Paul says, I want you to notice how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Did you catch that there? Paul says, sometimes I taught everybody publicly. And then sometimes we had small group teaching that took place from house to house. And so I said a moment ago, maybe there's not any specific examples in the Bible of a Bible class, but maybe I would retract that a little bit. Because Paul seems to be alluding to that very thing. And this isn't the only place Paul talks about that. Look in Galatians 2. In Galatians chapter 2, here's another illustration. Paul is recounting his conversion. And he makes reference to a little Bible class that he was having in Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 2, look in verse number 1. In Galatians 2 and in verse 1, Paul says, After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Did you notice there? Paul didn't teach everybody in Jerusalem at first. Paul said he had a small group. He met with some men privately and had a study with them. And so there's not any of this business about dividing up the assembly and what's the Bible say about all that. If you want to have a Bible class, the Bible clearly demonstrates we can. Well, I must tell you there was another smokescreen argument that often gets tossed into this discussion. And that is thirdly, that Bible classes, well, Bible classes are problematic because they use women as teachers. And of course, whenever we hear about women maybe serving in roles that the Bible has not authorized, well, that of course always brings us a certain level of discomfort. Especially when we recognize that there are so many churches in the world today who have women serving in roles like preachers and elders and deacons. And we certainly, we're not going to go down that road. We're not interested in that. We're not, we don't want to prop any of that up in any way. But I would simply say this. Regardless of what you make, about the divine limitations that God has placed on women in passages like 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, I would say this. There is nothing in the New Testament that forbids a woman from teaching small children. 
Or even a woman from teaching other women for that matter. We certainly could go in depth and get all involved talking about all the particulars of how a woman cannot exercise authority over a man. And that's a whole separate topic for a whole separate time. But that really is irrelevant to this discussion because a woman is not prohibited from teaching and exercising authority over a kid. And so once again, that was an argument that just didn't have anything to do with anything. And it really just seemed to kind of sidetrack the whole discussion. Which then leads and points to this final argument, which I believe, I believe this really is what it boils down to for most folks. And that is, you know what Bible classes, they just look kind of denominational. At the end of the day, they just look denominational. You know, ever since the beginning, ever since the first century, ever since Acts chapter 2, Christ's church has been counterculture. Isn't that true? That God's people, we have always swam against the tide, against the current. We don't want to be classified as just another denomination because we are not. And so in the eyes of some people, for a local church of Christ to have a Bible class, oh, that's just unthinkable. That's just unconscionable. Because denominational churches, they have their Sunday schools and Bible classes look like Sunday schools. In fact, the fella who wrote this little booklet, and I I read it, out of the 50 pages in this thing, eight full pages are devoted to this argument that Bible classes just have the appearance of being denominational. His summary, and I'm quoting here, he said, if it looks like a duck, acts like a duck, and sounds like a duck, it is a duck. And Bible classes used by churches of Christ look, act, and sound like denominational Sunday schools. Now, I am in full agreement that we do not want the Lord's church to be reduced to just the status of being just another denomination. But you know what? I can't help the fact that denominational churches have pews and denominational churches have microphones And denominational churches have songbooks. I can't help that. But you know what? Their use of such things, that has no bearing whatsoever on what we can and should do and are authorized to do in carrying out God's Word. And while I always want to be careful not to allow Christ's church to be classified as just another denomination, we must not ever allow denominational churches... Or I'll take that one step further. We must not allow even other faithful congregations to dictate to us what we can or cannot do in teaching the Word of God. We are an autonomous church beholden only to our head, Jesus Christ. In fact, when you stop and think about it, this argument that the non-class brethren have offered, this isn't even an argument from Scripture. In fact, I read all eight pages that that guy offered about this. He said not one word from the Word of God. This doesn't prove anything. It's a matter of one man's opinion. Now, these are the the main objections that people have offered and continue to offer against Bible classes. And I hope you've seen that there's just there's just real problems with those arguments. There's cracks in those arguments, and they just don't hold up. You might be wondering, though, well, what about that other issue? It's kind of a two-pronged issue. What about the issue, the objections to using multiple containers in the fruit of the vine on the Lord's Supper? Well, the first argument that gets made about that 
is actually the same first argument that we saw earlier about demanding a specific example. And that is, folks are going to say, there is no passage of Scripture that specifically mentions having multiple containers on the Lord's Supper. You show us one time in the Bible where all those teeny tiny little cups were used in serving the Lord's Supper. Well, I'll just simply say again, and I'm going to be brief here. Again, that's the wrong thing to be asking for. Multiple containers are authorized in the general command to take the Lord's Supper. We do not have to have a specific apostolic example when we have the general command to take the emblems of the Lord's Supper. Now what usually happens when you make that point is folks are going to immediately follow it up with is they're going to say, well, well, Jesus used one cup. And you know what? I don't even think I'd even argue that part of it. I believe there's biblical evidence that Jesus did use just one cup. Look in Matthew chapter 26, please. In Matthew chapter 26, this is in the institution of the Lord's Supper. In Matthew chapter 26, I'm reading here beginning in verse 26. In Matthew 26, verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it, and He gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And He took a cup, or maybe your translation says the cup. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. Someone says, well, there you go. When we take the Lord's Supper, we need to be doing it just like Jesus did. Are you sure? Are you sure about that? That we're going to do it exactly like Jesus did? I would remind you that Jesus took the Lord's Supper at night. Verse 20 tells us that this was an evening observance. Is that part of the Lord's Supper? That when we take the Lord's Supper, it has to be nighttime, it has to be dark outside. That's the way Jesus did it. I would also call your attention to verse 20 where it says that Jesus was reclined. At the table. Is that part of the Lord's Supper? Need to get into a reclined posture? All of us laying back or laying on our sides? That's the way Jesus did it. You see, how far do you want to take this? You know, Jesus took the Lord's Supper in an upper room. I guess maybe we might be okay there because this technically is the second story of this building. Well, what about everybody else who doesn't have a second story? It was in an upper room with lights and they weren't electric lights. They would have been like candle lights. Jesus took that Lord's Supper in Jerusalem. Where does this end? You see, the question is not, what are all the details about when the Lord's Supper happened because we need to replicate all of those details note for note for note. No. The question is, what did Jesus command His followers to do as being filled with meaning in this memorial feast? Well, I believe that the only elements that Jesus said were important here are the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. I do not believe that there is any importance to what time of day on Sunday that we take the Lord's Supper. I don't think it matters what posture your body is sitting in. It doesn't matter where you are geographically, as in what part of the world you're in. I don't think any of those details are relevant here. The only thing that Jesus ascribes meaning to are the bread, which represents His body. And the fruit of the vine, which represents His blood. And yet, one cup proponents, they will contend that there's not just two elements. 
they will contend that there is actually a third element to the supper, and that is the one cup. That the one cup, it symbolizes the new covenant. You might be wondering, well, Josh, where in the world do they get that from? That would be Luke chapter 22. Would you find Luke chapter 22? This is where that argument is entirely born from. And this is Luke's record of the institution of the Lord's Supper. We've read Matthew. We could look at Mark's, very similar. This is Luke's account of the Lord's Supper. And Luke does record a little additional detail in Jesus' verbiage on that night. In Luke chapter 22, look at verse 20. There Jesus says, or there the Bible says, And likewise He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You should know this is the most important passage for one cup folks. In fact, this is their only passage. This is the passage that they stand on to teach and espouse that the cup, the cup matters. They believe that that one cup, it symbolizes the unity and the singularity of that one new covenant. I will tell you very candidly, I believe that they are mistaken. I do not believe that Luke is saying anything different than what Matthew said in his account and what Mark said in his account. When they point to the fruit of the vine. Look very carefully at verse 17 here. In verse 17, as we look here at the word cup here, I think what we're going to see is that it's not about the cup itself. Jesus is pointing to what is in the cup. Verse 17, He took a cup, And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Can I ask a question? Divide what? What did Jesus want them to divide? The actual physical container? Okay, Peter, go over here and get a hacksaw. We're going to start chopping this thing up. John, you're going to get the handle. Thomas, you're going to get the bottom. Bartholomew, we're going to give you a piece over here on the... Is that what that means? That we're going to divide up the actual physical container? No, Jesus meant we're going to divide up what is inside the container. And in fact, I think verse 18 makes that absolutely clear. Because there Jesus says in verse 18, For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What is Jesus talking about? Is He talking about a container? Or is He talking about what's inside? That container. In fact, with that understanding, would you look at verse 20 again? Jesus says, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Is that talking about the container? No, He's talking about the content, the fruit of the vine, because that is what you pour out. Cup, in Luke chapter 22, it is merely a figure of speech. In fact, I think we've addressed this once before in a Q&A. It's a figure of speech called metonymy. That is, it represents, it stands for what is inside that cup. And in fact, we still do that even to this day. It's like when a lady of the house, she has a bunch of guests over and she walks into the living room and she asks everybody, hey, who wants coffee? Those of you that are coffee drinkers, how many times have you ever answered that question by saying, bring me a cup? You ever said that before? Bring me a cup. I'll have a cup. Bring me a cup. Let me ask you, when somebody says, bring me a cup, do they mean, hey, Bring me a ceramic mug, an empty mug. I'm going to just, you know, chew on the mug or lick the mug or do something. I don't know. Is that what they mean? No. It means bring me a cup of coffee. 
cup is simply a figure of speech to refer to what is inside that cup. And when Jesus talks here about the cup being the new covenant in my blood, He's not talking about a physical container. He's talking about the fruit of the vine which is emblematic of His precious blood. And so you see, these are the arguments that seek to bind the one cup position. And I hope you've seen that they are incredibly weak. And they are filled with all kinds of just very logical holes. And consequently, you should know that these arguments have not persuaded many brethren. In fact, when these issues were first being debated in its most feverish sense in the early 1900s, the end result was that one cup, non-class brethren, they began to pull away from churches of Christ. In fact, they formed their own fellowship refusing to have anything to do with churches that did not conform to their particular and peculiar practices. They announced that churches who were not one cup and churches who were not non-class, they were in apostasy, they were in error, and that they need to repent. Today, in the United States, there are about a thousand congregations that would be identified as non-class. About half of that number also subscribe to the one-cup doctrine. Interestingly, there are about a half-dozen of those churches just within like a half-hour radius of right here in Somerset. In fact, two of those are right here within the county. But all of those churches, you should know, they are small. As one-cup classes, or one-cup non-class churches, they average about 31 members, and that number is getting lower and lower and lower every single year. Now you might be thinking, okay, Josh, well, that's, that was good. Thanks for answering the question. Got some better understanding about the position and the argument. It was interesting to hear all of that, wind in some history with all of that. But, I mean, well, what is, what does all that mean for us? You know, I, nobody here, at least to my knowledge, is advocating that we ditch multiple cups and go to one cup. Anybody in favor? Just, let's just have one cup. And I haven't heard anybody saying, hey, we need to just ditch these Bible classes, let's do away with them. So the question is, what are we supposed to be taking away from all of this? Can I give you three important takeaways and then this lesson will be yours? I think the first thing that needs to be said is that this whole ordeal, it well illustrates the need for critical thinking. You know, that line that we heard a couple of times already, about the apostles didn't do it, so we shouldn't do it. That sounds kind of good. But that's not asking the question in the right way, is it? To demand a specific, when there may only be general authority, that is a step in the wrong direction. Instead of asking questions like, well, where did the apostles ever have a Bible class? Where did the apostles ever use a microphone? Where did Peter ever use PowerPoint to preach a sermon? Where did Paul ever update a church website? Instead of asking that kind of question, what we simply need to ask is, where is the authority? General authority or specific authority, but where is the authority for the things that we do? And it is important that we ask that question. 
And it's important that we understand the difference between general authority and specific authority. And it's important that we use our God-given brains here because whenever we start limiting how God's Word authorizes by saying, you know what, we're not going to take anything less than a specific apostolic example, then what we are doing is we are limiting the very voice of God. And I want to suggest to you that we better tread very carefully with that. Secondly, I think this teaches us that there really is no virtue in trying to be ultra-conservative. You know, we are the people, and in fact I think we are, are proud of the fact that we are the people who are very careful with the Word of God. That we want to do just what God says. We take the Bible very seriously. And you know what? That's a good thing. We need to be that. Maybe we even need a little bit more of that. But we don't ever want that to drive us to an extreme, the extreme of ultra-conservatism, where we're trying to be even more careful than God would even have us to be. This is the extreme. Let me spell that out a little bit more clearly. This is the extreme that says it's better to just do nothing than to risk doing something wrong. This is the extreme that looks with a, with a suspicious eye at anything new. Any new kind of idea, any new kind of technology, any new kind of method, that's just got to be wrong because, well, because it's new. This is the extreme that says we can't do anything if a denominational group is doing something similar. Or if some big liberal church, if they're doing something similar, we better stay away from that because we don't want to look like them. And of course, this is also the extreme that says we have to just figure everything out. We have to figure everything out right down to the most tiny, minute detail, even if the Bible doesn't speak to this matter, even if the Bible does not specify on these matters, we've got to work it all out, just like the Pharisees did. Going to get it all figured out to the nth degree, and everybody who doesn't agree with the way that we're doing it, well, they're just wrong. Do you know what's happened to one-cup, non-class churches since all of this division happened back in the 1930s? You would think that they would all be standing arm in arm. They'd all be united against all us liberal folks because we've got our Bible classes and our multiple containers. But actually, you would be wrong about that. In their quest to be ultra-conservative, what these brethren have done is they have bite, they've bitten, and they have devoured one another in just an incredible fashion. Their extremist mindset has led them to just shatter and fragment into a million different pieces. You've got one cup non-class churches, but then you've also got one cup class churches. And they won't speak to each other. Then you've got one cup non-class wine only on the Lord's Supper churches, and they won't speak to the one cup non-class grape juice churches. Then you've got one cup, no class, wine only, you must break the loaf churches. And they won't speak to the one cup, non-class, grape juice only, don't break the loaf churches. And I could just keep going with that with every possible permutation that you can imagine. Because they want to just work it down to the very last detail. Details that God has not spoken to. Details that the Bible does not speak on. But they figured it all out. And everybody who's not doing it exactly the way that they're doing it, well, sorry, but you're out and we're in. 
They have fragmented and they have divided bitterly. That's where that leads. And as a result, many of those groups, they have very little influence, not just in the world, but they even have very little influence amongst themselves. And we ought to see that as a cautionary tale for us. You know, I want to be right. I think that you do too. I want to do just what the Bible authorizes. But I do not want to fall prey to the thinking that being ultra-conservative, that is more conservative than even the New Testament would require, that somehow that makes me a better Christian or that makes us a better church. It does not. And then finally this morning, it is worth asking, can we possibly mend the bridge with one cup, brethren? You know, there's no escaping the fact that unity is very important to God. Jesus prayed for unity amongst His followers in John 17. Paul commanded unity in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God's people, the Bible is clear, God's people need to be united. And so sometimes people will just ask the question, will say, well, you know what, why don't we just give up our multiple containers? Why don't we just give up our Bible classes? That way we can come together and we can have unity with those brethren. And you know what? That sounds really good. And I'll be honest with you. I'm willing to give up just about anything, any matter of non-essentials in order to have unity with other Christians. I am. But can you see this morning that the issue is not really about cups and classes. It's about how you understand the Bible. And it's about understanding how the Bible authorizes us to do what we do. Cups and classes are just a symptom of brethren who don't understand the proper application of New Testament authority. Having said that, I'll say again, I could give up my multiple containers in order to have unity. You might be thinking, I'm not willing to do that. Germs, unsanitary. I'm not big on that. I could give all of that up. That's not a big deal to me. However, here's the problem. One cup brethren would want me to first repent of the sin of using multiple containers on the Lord's Supper. And I can't do that. Because I do not believe that it is sinful to have multiple containers on the Lord's table. I could give it up for the sake of unity, but I cannot denounce that as wrong and sinful and repent of that when I do not believe that it is something that needs to be repented of. And so while I would very much like to be united, I'd love to be in fellowship with those brethren, those one-cup brethren. They have set standards of fellowship that I just cannot reach to. I cannot attain to. I cannot possibly meet their lofty standards. And so to this very day, we are divided. That is unfortunate. And I have no doubt in my mind that that is disappointing to the Lord. But I am determined personally, and I hope that you are determined personally, And I hope that we as a congregation are determined collectively to simply be found rightly handling the Word of God, living in accordance with its clear instruction, and doing that with a commitment to Jesus Christ, that our allegiance is to Him and not to some fanatical extremist view. May the Lord help us in our efforts to simply serve Him according to His Word. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I am not going to stand up here and try to hide from you the fact 
that Christians do sometimes differ about things. That's going to happen. It's just the nature of people being people. Having said that though, we are always ready to open up our Bibles and to try to give an answer for why we believe what we believe and why we do what we do. And I'll tell you this morning what we believe. We believe that the Bible teaches that in order for a person to be saved, that they need to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins because that's what Acts 2 and verse 38 says. In fact, that note is repeated a number of times throughout the New Testament. We believe that's what a person does to get into Christ and out of the domain of darkness. Can we help you this morning to get into Christ, to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit by His authority so that you can be one of God's children? We stand ready to do that. Brother or sister, we also believe that we are to walk in the steps of Jesus. We are to try to live like Jesus did. And if it's somewhere along the way we find that we're not living like Jesus did, that we've allowed sin to creep into our lives, then we believe the Bible teaches that we need to repent of that, that we're not once saved, always saved, that we need to come back to the Lord, seeking His forgiveness, and we can do that even right now. Pray with you, encourage you, help you to serve the Lord in a better way from this day forward. Whatever your need may be, we stand ready to help. You simply just need to make it known. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.